Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, calling all those on the Firehose Volunteer Muster Roll, get on the boat because it's SST 235, the Firehose from Ohio LP. And before our break, I mentioned that this is one of my all-time faves and boy, howdy. Yeah. I just I just love, love, love this record. Um, and I'll spiel a bit more about why and how much I love it later on, of course. But Brent, on this episode, to kick us off in 2023, we've got an extra special guest. Yeah, we've got Georgie on the show, Fireman Hurley. Oh, so cool to have George Hurley on. Great guy, great spiels. That means we've had all of Firehose yep. on, on the show over the years. We'll get into that too later on, but... I just, uh, I feel so lucky, man. I feel so lucky. Mm-hmm. So we're back from break though. And as usual, I've got a bit of a spiel log. I'm sure you do too. Yep. But why don't you start and see where we go? Okay. Uh, as usual, I crammed in as many records, books, and rock docs into my Mojack vacation as possible. And I'm going to start 2023 off with a book report. Oh, uh, cool. As I'm sure I've mentioned previously, I have an ever-growing pile. Um, you know, so these aren't some of them aren't new books, uh, but most of them are. I'll start with an older one, Ryan, uh, which I know I've mentioned before. It's "What Makes the Monkey Dance: oh, the, yeah. the Life and Music of Chuck Prophet and Green on Red" by Stevie Simkin, 2020 Jawbone Press. I got this as soon as it came out and have probably read the first chapter three or four times. I I have a bad (laughs) habit of starting books and then putting them down when a newer one comes along. Uh, But one of my many New Year's resolutions is to read one book at a time. Uh, Now, I love Green on Red and have all of their records and maybe half of Chuck's solo output. If you're a fan or looking to be one, this book is a dream come true. It's the type of book you wish could be written about every band or artist that you love. Hmm. Stevie is a super fan and an archivist. Full participation from Chuck, Dan Stewart of Green on Red, and and many of the various musicians Chuck's played with. It goes through his entire career in detail, uh, including detailed discussion of each album and tour. Lots of info about the recording sessions, songwriting, uh, it doesn't prioritize uh, one era over another, which is a frequent gripe of mine. Mm. With these types of books, lots of great photos, endless recommendations, uh, a bibliography, uh, a discography. I loved every page. Ooh, you know I love bibliographies and discographies. I know you do. Yeah. How about index? Any index action in that book? Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, nice. There's index action. You better believe it. Another one that falls into the same category of being a fan's dream is Destination Onward, the story of Fate's Warning. Now, this is a recommend, but not for you, Ryan. (laughs) I know. (laughs) By Jeff Wagner, 2022 FYI Press. As soon as I saw this, I couldn't get it fast enough. Um, I'll put it to you this way. I had to order it from the U.S., so factoring in shipping and the exchange rate. Uh, it cost me like $85, but it was worth every penny. Uh, I was already a fan of Jeff from his um, previous book, Mean Deviation on Bazillion Points, which is an amazingly detailed book about prog metal, bands like Voivod, Watchtower, Fate's Warning, Queensryche, Mind Over Four, tons more. It's an awesome book, and he also has a cool podcast called Radical Research that he co-hosts with uh, this guy Hunter Ginn. 
Check out their detailed look at Skin Yard from last year. It's really oh, good. Cool. Yeah, anyways, I love Fate's Warning and even more after reading this. Again, he interviewed all members past and present, uh, including full access to Jim Mathios, um, who's like Fate's Warning is his band. He's the guitarist, songwriter, only constant member of the band. It's an incredible book. I don't often do this, but I'll definitely uh, be reading this one again. This never happens to me anymore, but as I read this, I listened to Faint's Warning exclusively and nonstop for like a month. Whoa. Yeah. Like for all of December? Uh, well, I started this like, <laughs> you know, October, <laughs> November, and was reading like 10 other books at the same time. So, <laughs> Not anymore. Not, not with your New Year's resolution. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, not, well, yeah, I've already broken it, so... Another one I couldn't get my hands on fast enough after it was announced was The Longest Suicide. Oh yeah, I read that over uh, the holidays too, it's awesome. Yeah, The Authorized Biography of Art Bergman by Jordan Schneider, 2022 Anvil Press. Uh, For those outside of Canada who don't know, Art is a Canadian icon, first wave Vancouver punk rocker with the K-Tells who changed their name to The Young Canadians. Uh, Their recorded output and a bunch of outtakes was packaged as No Escape. That's the name of the the comp back in the mid-90s. It's also up on streaming sites. And if you've never heard it, it's some of the greatest music to ever come out of Canada. Um, Some of Art's music after Young Canadians is hit or miss. Like he's an unbelievably gifted songwriter. uh, And it comes through in the songs. But for me, some of the production choices um, weren't so great. Agreed. Uh, in the 80s, which he acknowledges, I think, in this book. His 90s albums, Sexual Roulette and What Fresh Hell Is This, are both streaming and are both like definite recommends, I would say. Those, yeah. are, those are good ones. Yeah, the Young Canadians were kind of like Canada's answer to the replacements. Sorry, Ma forgot to take out the trash era, but, but distinctly Canadian and a trio too. Just yeah. killer, just killer. Yeah, and I mean, he gets compared, his solo stuff gets compared to Paul Westerberg quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. and he he wrote a song about Paul Westerberg, so what are you going to do? Yeah. Of course, his drug problem um, has been well documented and is covered in this book. Again, some great picks, a discography, uh, but I found the book to be a little short. It's only 140 pages. I would have liked a little more detail on the post-Young Canadians era, but overall, it's a cool book and definitely a good primer for Art's career. Yeah, it's great. Did you catch that part where they're talking about the movie Roadkill and how it was based on that band, A Neon Rome yep. branch? Yeah, <laughs> I already knew that actually, but I, I had forgotten that. Yeah, yeah I, didn't, I didn't remember you uh, mentioning that when you got that Neon Rome cassette, and I'm like, oh, I got to mention that to Brandt. Yeah, right no, there. I've read that before. It might have been in uh, the Have Not Been the Same book or something. I, I know I knew that, but uh, I definitely forgot it. Yeah. Um, uh, I And I feel like I've talked about this on the podcast before, but speaking of Art being like Paul Westerberg or compared to Paul Westerberg, when you and I saw Art Bergman one time, I think he probably said any any requests, and you shouted, I hate music, which is a young Canadian song and yep. also a replacement song. Yep. And he goes, I don't know that song, but I can play this. And he played the replacement song talent show. Oh. And you turned to me and you were like, I can't fucking believe he's playing this song right now. I know it was pretty amazing. And, and there's a break in that song on don't tell a soul where there's some 
you know, crashing glass, like someone knocks over a beer bottle. Yeah. And and Art, when he was playing it live, and this is a solo acoustic show, we saw Art play. And at that part in the song, he's like, somebody throw down a beer bottle, you know? <laughs> so good. So good. Yeah. Uh, I kn- another total gem I know we mentioned before the break, some new kind of kick, Kid Congo Powers with oh, yeah. Chris Campion. 2022, Hatchet Books, the same as Jim Rulin's Corporate Rock Sucks, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and congratulations to Jim, since uh, his name came up. His book made many top uh, books of the year last yeah. year, and rightfully so. Kid's book is the perfect length, 250 or so pages. So much amazing insight into his time uh, in the gun club and his relationship with Jeffrey Lee Pierce, which is what mm-hmm. I came for. Uh, of course, he was also in The Cramps, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, among others. He's led a, a super interesting art uh, life, like art and so many other creative minds. He's also battled some addictions. Uh, much like the Fate's Warning book, I was binging those first four Gun Club albums while, while reading that book. Oh, I, yeah. po- I powered through that one. I probably read it in like two days. Highly recommended. I read that one over Christmas too. That yeah. one, the Art Bergman one. Uh, I read the Greg Graffin book. Yeah, I've got uh, that sitting on my pile. Yeah, I'm about a quarter of the way through Hearts on Fire, that new Canadian music one from 2000 to 2005. That's the era it covers by Michael Barclay. That one I can't put down. I just finished the chapter a while back on uh, Godspeed, You Black Emperor. Yeah. Wow, this guy can write, and it's a, such a great snapshot. Okay, Ryan, speaking of drug addicts, I was talking before the break about how I had finished volume one of uh, Jerry A. Lang's Black Heart Fades Blue on Rare Bird Books. Oh, poison idea. Yep. Well, I did volume two, uh, which really gets into the wild debauchery uh, surrounding poison idea. Some of the stories he tells are truly horrific. Um, (laughs) But if you've ever heard him interviewed, he's also a huge musicologist and a huge music fan. Uh, he talks a lot about Portland punk, some great wiper stories. Carducci gets a mention for bringing lots of the first punk imports into the scene. Uh, mm. Overall, it's a pretty dark and harrowing read and, and not for the faint of heart. Uh, but I'm looking forward to volume three, hopefully more of like a redemption story. I know he's, you know, he's got his, his life together now. So cool. Something a bit different. This book, Ryan, Banging the Monkey, a novel written by Todd A., a.k.a. Todd Ashley of Cop, Shoot, Cop, Firewater, etc. I I usually always buy fiction written by musicians, especially if they're amazing lyricists like Todd. This is his first novel, 2019, Flagrante Delecto. Kind of a crime noir. I'll, I'll read a part of the back jacket here. Disaffected writer Mark O'Kane is in a downward spiral. His last novel tanked, his wife left him, and his drinking is out of control. So when a chance meeting with an enigmatic businessman, Frank Fox, leads to a cushy job on the tropical island of Madu, it sounds like Mark's salvation. He can finally write his comeback novel and set his life on a brighter path. But when Frank disappears, Mark is left holding the bag for his boss's shady business dealings. And after a corpse washes up in the local lagoon, Mark may even be charged with Frank's murder. As he skirts the border between regret and desire, Mark discovers that the demons of his past are not so easily outrun, and that paradise comes with a price. Yowza. Yep. 
Uh, yeah, so I checked that one out. Last but not least, I read Brian Johnson's The Lives of Brian. That's the memoir, of course, of the ACDC frontman. I pre-ordered this book over a year ago, <laughs> like a year and a half ago, and then it ended up getting delayed um, for some reason. I'm guessing something to do with COVID. So here's the thing with me and these kinds of books. I usually always look at the index or uh, flip ahead to see how long I have to read to get to the goods. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I want to read about their childhood and teenage years, but 30 to 50 pages or so is about my limit. Now, granted, he was in his mid-30s by the time he joined ACDC, so there's a lot of life to, to get up to that point. Yep. But nobody was buying this book to read 150 pages on his time in Geordie. He doesn't get to his audition for ACDC until page 290, and it's a 330-page book. What? In a way, it kind of makes sense to take that long, you know, to get to the to the reason everyone bought the book, because it does give a real perspective on how hard he struggled, and you know how how much shit he went through to to get to that point. And don't get me wrong, he's a great storyteller, uh, and he you know he's like got a million hilarious stories, and he definitely paid his dues. But what makes it worse is that when he finally gets to the making of Back in Black and his audition for ACDC, it is so good. <laughs> oh yeah and then it's over the book's over uh, does a book end after back in black yeah wow is he gonna write a second book i i don't think he said if he has i haven't seen it uh i hope so he pretty much you know he makes it pretty clear that acdc is still an active band you know especially after this the success of power up the acdc camp is notoriously secretive yeah. Uh, and private, so I'm sure like a tell-all of his time in the band would probably be frowned upon. Mm. So hopefully he writes part two, you know, maybe when ACD, you know, when he retires from ACDC or something. Yeah. it Like, it's a good book. I guess it's it's just not what I was expecting. I read some reviews of it just to see if other people thought the same thing I did, and people loved it. So, hmm. you know, and I did too. Like, it was good. It was just, you know, I want the goods on on ACDC. Yeah. I would read a few chapters on flick of the switch myself. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. You don't ever hear about flick of the switch, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. I know. Right. Yeah. Whew. That's what I have, Ryan. That, and that's only the start. Like <laughs> the irony being like, all I want to do is read books and partially so I can spiel about them all on the show. But once we're back in Mojack mode, I have zero time to read books. I know. I know, man. I know you got to clone yourself. Well, usually, I mean, I've got a spiel log too, but usually I'll ask you to spin the wheel of spiels. I can't do that because uh, some of these I didn't even, I didn't even uh, finish writing them all out. But so I've got like upcoming books, a Watts on bass spiel, uh, rock docs, Dio edition brand. (laughs) Um, I've got a new segment called flea market finds coming up. Yeah, um, I've got a label focus or two, hmm. uh, so I've definitely no trips got, to the comp zone. Not well. I will in this week's spiel, and this week's spiel is records. Okay, I got to as as is usually the case. The second we do our top tens and year end roundup or whatever, I find some that I missed, mm-hmm. 
And then there's also a whole slew of new ones coming out that uh, I gotta I gotta get pre-ordered and whatnot. Um, and my my book spiel when I get to that, whatever week or episode that is, that's all stuff that's coming out. I already kind of just spieled about the stuff I read over my holidays. But here are some misses from 2022 that I knew I knew about these. I should have said something about them when we were doing our year-end roundup. So here's here's a rapid fire because I got to get to some new releases too. I should have mentioned the new Calmarks, My Name is Hell, on Exploding in Sound Records. Great noise rock, sometimes melodic. A lot of people don't like the vocals. I'm good with Calmarks. A new release by Cloakroom came out, Dissolution Wave. This is on Relapse. Um, Slowcore of the highest order. Love Cloakroom. Uh, the Damned put out a double LP. I don't know if you saw that. Night of a Thousand Vampires, live. It's killer. Mm-hmm. Yep, and so is the the live concert footage. Yeah. Yeah. Weird nightmare. I forgot to mention that. That's a great record. I loved it. I yeah, loved it. it um, a- Alex from Mets on sub pop. That was a great record. Yeah. And then, so I forgot to mention those. Here's some new releases coming out soon though, that uh, you should get your grubby mitts on two records coming out on rock as hell records, both with Kevin Rudimanis, who of course is from the cows, Melvin's Tomahawk. One is his uh, combo hepatitis the record is called uneat and it's it's described as a record in the rich tradition of the delta blues meets modern oral surgery techniques yeah i love hepatitis and then uh, there's also another record with kevin and it's with trevor dunn so it's called dunn rutamanis and it's called crackpot whorehead that'll be good definitely some of my favorite uh, bass players there's a new Fake Names record coming out called Expandables. That's the uh, super group, of course, with Brian Baker and then Michael from Embrace. Uh, but now with Brendan Canty on drums. So that's going to be killer. That's coming out on Epitaph. Uh, Mud Honey announced a new yeah. album. Plastic Eternity out in April. Can't wait for that. I love their last two. Life in Vacuum. This is a Toronto, Ontario, noisy post-hardcore outfit that I saw at a festival like... It would have been pre-pandemic, but they just melted my face. They were so good. Two brothers on guitar and drums and then a bass player. Can't wait to hear their new record out in April called Lost. It's a a follow-up to 2018's All You Can Quit. Life in Vacuum. So good. And then, before I get to a couple on the tree, I'm going to mention one in what zone, Brand? The comp zone. Yeah, all right. So there's uh, one coming out on uh, Futurismo called Suburban Annihilation. It's a double LP that documents the California hardcore explosion from 78 to 83. The track list is co-curated by Henry Rollins, and it has uh, liners by Lisa Fancher of Frontier. And it has kind of, you know, like a best of from bands like Adolescence, Middle Class, Agent Orange, Dead Kennedys, TSOL, Suicidal, Circle Jerks, uh, Wasted Youth, Gun Club, Flipper, Social D, and The Germs, uh, with photos by Ed Culver. So that And Futurismo always has a really nice package. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, one more before we get to the tree. Three minus two equals... John Wright. That's right, man. Three minus two <laughs> equals one is John Wright from No Means Knows. New release. Uh, actually, that's what he's he's going under that uh, that name. Um, obviously, a take off of the classic 
no means no record, zero plus two equals one, which I like better than wrong. I know that's sacrilege, but I like zero plus two. And in fact, why do they call me Mr. Happy is the best no means no record. Here, but here. this this one is called Lifelike, um, which is interesting because that was a, a song off of Headless Bourgeoisie. This one's out in February, near the end of February. Can't wait to hear mm-hmm. new John Wright. Can't wait. I hope there's a physical copy. This is going to be, I think, the first John Wright since the Compressor Head record. And then also the uh, the Specimen Box project that Larry Boothroyd did on Valley King Records. That one was called Four Walls. And, and actually, I should mention that there is a second Specimen Box 2LP that came out recently on Valley King Records again. This one's called Two. And like the first one, this one also has Andy Kerr on it. John Wright is not on this second specimen box, presumably because he was working on this new record, Lifelike, which I can't wait to hear. Yeah, me too, man. And then quickly, two on the tree. Royal Arctic Institute have put out a new cassette called From Coma to Catharsis. This is out on Already Dead Tapes and Records. And on February 3rd, this, of course, is Lyle Heisen from Das Damen. And you know I love me some Damen. And then I should also mention that Mini Beast, their excellent record on ice, it has just recently been re-released on a vinyl 2LP edition. You can go and pick that up on Bandcamp and uh, support that great combo fronted by Peter Prescott from Mission of Burma and Volcano Suns. Love Mini Beast. Mm-hmm. That's it, man. That's I am just scratching the surface like you. Mm. You didn't mention the new Steve Vai record, though. <laughs> Does he play one of those guitars with the handle? Oh, like, I like one with can the only grip, hope, yeah. With, with the grippy handle in it or whatever, the fluorescent yellow one? Yeah. Hey, I like Vi. I like Vi. Uh, I don't, I've never really gotten into his solo stuff, but of course, of course, I like uh, those records that yeah. he's on with Zappa, of course. Yeah. This one's actually kind of interesting. He made it in like the early 90s with a singer on it. Some like oh. unknown singer. Yeah. It's like a rock so, record. So was it like unreleased after all these years? Yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah. Why, I wonder why it sat on the shelf. It probably because Smells Like Teen Spirit came out and they said, yeah. we're not releasing this, right? Could be. Yep. Oh, well. Okay, man. You want to go to Ohio? History lesson, part one. All right. Like I said, I'm probably going to just like not really have any great things to say. I'm just going to keep saying, I love this record. I love this record with no analysis or anything, but you know, bear with me here. Um, We've had Firehose on the show a few times all the way back. Actually, it's been over a hundred episodes since we've had Firehose on just crazy. But we started off, of course, with uh, SST 79, the Ragin' full-on record, and Ed Crawford was a guest on the show. So happy to have Ed on back then. Hope he's doing well. Uh, we had Ifin on as SST-115. Love that record, too. Uh, and then the last Firehose record we had was SST-131, the sometimes 12-inch. So, again, that's like over 100 episodes again. And, you know, I mentioned at the outset of the show, we've had everyone from Firehose on. If you want to hear Mike Watt on the show, you got to go all the way back to episode four, the punchline, where Mike was... Uh, an early supporter that we're still grateful, grateful for him to have done that to this day, of course. But again, we've got George on the show. Uh, so cool to hear from him. Can't wait to spiel with you after we listen to that interview. But, you know, I'll probably get into a bit more um, 
analyses when we get into the tracks, but I was just thinking about this record and it was like one of my university study hall tapes Mm. that I would just be playing in my yellow Sony Walkman that would auto flip, you know, so I could have all three of these Firehose records on my tape, Raging Full On, Ifin, and From Ohio, and nothing gave me the feels like some of the songs on From Ohio. Yeah. Yeah, I love this album too. And same for me. I, I had this and the I had the, the three SST records, you know, at a very formative time in my life and listened yeah. to them a lot. Especially the especially the, the first one is the one for me. Ragin'? Yeah. Ragin'. It goes for me. Uh, I was thinking about this this week. Personally, it goes, my favorites go in the order they were released. But I mean, like, they're, I love all the records. Yeah. You know? Like, I couldn't live without any of the five full lengths, for sure. Uh, and you want to talk about sacrilege. I've probably said this on the show before. But, like, and I love the Minutemen. Don't get me wrong. Um, but if I had to choose, if I could only have one of the two bands for the rest of my life, it would be Firehose. Yeah. For me. I get that. I totally get that. And I'm probably in the same boat, although I would never say that out loud. (laughs) Yeah. And this album, as I just mentioned, is their last for SST. I was thinking about this, Ryan, kind of as as we start a new season of the show. It's, I'm using air quotes because we don't really have seasons, but, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to, to, to see what's coming up, uh, through the lens of like the supposed decline of the label, because, Mm. you know, this is kind of the, you know, they're joining Sonic Youth, the Pops, Dinosaur Jr., Screaming Trees, Bad Brain, Soundgarden, uh, as, you know, Major Husker, labels. Husker Du's long gone by this point, yeah. as kind of like this mass exodus, you know. Uh, you know, Husker Du moved off in, uh, you know, in 86 to Warner Brothers. Um, but around this time, it was really like the mass exodus of SST's biggest bands. Fortunately, we still have a couple more uh, Screaming Trees records and yeah. by the way we haven't talked about van connor that's oh yeah really too bad what happened to, to van i know he was sick for a while and and uh, condolences to his family yeah uh, do you see like he was obviously a well-liked guy oh there yeah was just like yeah. the outpouring of of tributes for van passing away i definitely spun a few trees records that day yeah but i mean like we're in 89 now um you know the Trees released their major label debut, Uncle Anesthesia, on Epic in 91. We'll be seeing Dinosaur Jr. a few more times, uh, but their next full length was 1990's Green Mind on Ooh. Sire Warner Brothers. Sonic Youth was long gone by this point, releasing Daydream Nation on Blast First in 88, and then Goo on DGC in 1990. Mm-hmm. Totally would have been so cool if uh, Daydream Nation would have been on SST. Yeah. Soundgarden, I don't really count because, you know, they were always going to be a one and done for SST. That was the deal right from, from the start. Bad Brains moved over to Virgin EMI, uh, like their pseudo indie label. Uh, Maverick, wasn't it Maverick? No, that came later. Caroline oh. is, is the label I'm talking about. Oh, okay. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maverick's, for, uh, Maverick's got a love in like, you know, 94. Yeah, I was like, that's, is, are you talking the Madonna uh, label? But no, you're talking... Um, Quickness. Yeah, you're talking Quickness. Yep. Uh, thankfully, we'll see the Pups a couple more times, but they jump ship to Universal Music Group uh, sub-label London Records in 1991 for the awesome, underrated, and hard-to-find album Forbidden Places. Uh, there's other examples, of course, like Pell Mell and Buffalo Tom. 
Uh, but the point is SST was just hemorrhaging bands at this point. Um, and they tended to be the ones that toured and obviously sold the most records. Mm-hmm. And, and it got me thinking, I wonder if Gin would have kept Black Flag going for a few more years if they would have moved to a major. And yeah, I know Unicorn was an MCA subsidiary label, so you know people don't have to point that out. But <laughs> the point I'm making is like uh, we're getting into that era that people... I mean, I think we're, we've been in the area era for quite some time that people think, you know, the labels in decline and yeah, there's different eras that people think SST is, is in decline in or, or whatever, you know, it's like, you know, oh, okay, well, once you're done, you know, the classic black flag records, SST sucked, you know, yeah. and, and then it's like, okay, well, once Husker Du leaves, you know, SST sucked, you know, and then you mentioned all these bands. I I mean, you know, we're going to get into some stuff that's pretty darn cool still though, I will say. Yeah. Well, uh, not as well no- not as well known though. Yeah. Well, yeah. It'll be interesting to 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 look through that lens as I say to to mm-hmm. you know to kind of dispel that myth, I think is mm-hmm. what we're going to do. I mean, there's going to be some some stinkers in there for sure, but <laughs> you know, they can't all be zingers. So what are you going to do? Um yeah. Hey, I'd sit through plenty of stinkers to get a zinger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure who they toured with, if anyone in particular, uh, but their 89 tour was called the Springboard Tour. And there's an amazing tour poster with artwork by someone named Roland. Uh, we're going to post it. Not sure if George was still sporting uh, his bitch and haircut known as the unit by this time. I don't think he was. Uh, in real life, but he is on the tour poster and it like in the drawing of him on the poster and it's super awesome. Um, and then another leg of the 89 tour later on was called the Viva La Condor tour. I'm not sure what the reference is there. I love the name of their tours. Like, I know, right. You know, the 1990 tour was called the engage in the milker tour. (laughs) 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 And the 91 tour was called, called the Coilin and Toilin tour. (laughs) Jeez. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. No question they were total road dogs. I, I found a few set lists uh, from the t- tour for this album, uh, and they op- the one set list I found, they opened the show with seven Who covers. Wow. Yeah. Like in a row. Unfortunately, I saw this after speaking with George, so you know, I, I wish I would have seen it before because I'd love to ask him about that. But mm. yeah. And I guess, you know, I guess we definitely don't need to do this, but we've gotten shit for not doing this before. So I'll, I'll just let everyone know, just in case, Firehose, Firehose was George Hurley on drums, Mike Watt uh, on ironing board. I think thunder broom. Well, he says, it says ironing board in the liners. It says thunder broom too. He okay. says, yeah, it says both of them. Yeah, and vocals, and Ed from Ohio, Ohio uh, Ed Crawford on guitar and vocals. Everybody knows that, but just in case. Better say it. Yep. Uh, this is the third Firehose album. It says in the liners, the third Firehose album was recorded in 30 hours at Suma in Painesville, Ohio. Paul Hammond engineered during October 17th to 20th, 1988. It took 30 more hours to add some of Ed singing, Watts Spiel, and have Joe Gert Van Avasoth do the final mix at Track Record in North Hollywood, California. Ronnie J. Champagne assisted Joe and sequenced the master. During November 
4th to 9th, 1988. That's what the liner notes say. Mm-hmm. Uh, produced by Mike Watt and Ed Crawford. Drum solos produced by George Hurley. So that recording studio, Suma, is located on 14 acres, just 30 minutes east of downtown Cleveland. That's what it says on their website. It says it's a historic recording studio specializing in classic analog equipment. Uh, that's sumarecording.com. It's still an active studio. It looks like an amazing space. There's lots of, of great photos. It's like uh, huge vaulted ceilings. It's like an old barn or something. It was opened in its current location by Ken Heyman in 1977, who ran it with assistance from his sons, Paul and David. They also um, had a Newman cutting lathe to make acetates. That's cool. Uh, Ken passed away in 2003 and his son Paul ran the studio until his passing in 2017. Uh, there was tons of famous records made there. Per Ubo recorded like so many albums at the studio. Uh, Brian Wilson recorded there in 88. Hmm. Uh, the Black Keys Attack and Release was engineered there by Paul uh, Heyman. Uh, that Human Switchboard, Ryan, was recorded there. Oh, cool. Remember? I do remember. The Pagans. Oh, nice. Keel Hall. Spike and Vane recorded there. Uh, our podcast pal, Matthew Wascovich and his awesome project, Scarcity of Tanks, recorded some stuff there. Oh, yeah. I wonder if The Dark recorded there. I don't know. Super rich history. Should we throw it over to George? Yeah, man. All right. We're joined on the podcast today by George Hurley. George, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. All right. So I want to go back to... Um, your uh, early life, you you didn't grow up in Pedro. Well, you grew up in Pedro, but you didn't. You weren't born on the West Coast. You were born on the East Coast. That's right. I was born in Massachusetts, and I ended up out here uh, when I was about five years old. Uh, my dad got a job as a pipe fitter mm. at the Navy shipyard. Uh-huh. And uh, he brought my mom and us, four other siblings, out. Do you remember the, the move? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of remember flying out here because uh, it's pretty cold in Massachusetts. I remember it snowing and then getting on board the, the jet. And uh, I don't remember landing, though. Yeah. I was probably pretty tired. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I know the weather was a lot nicer uh, when we came to California. <laughs> yeah. I know that much. <laughs> yeah. You got into drumming a little bit later, I think, than than a lot of people, you know, first picking yeah. up an instrument. Yeah, sure. You know, uh, we weren't really, didn't have a whole lot of money when we were growing up. I, I lived in the projects and mm-hmm. stuff, and I always wanted to play drums. I, I don't know why, but I just did. And uh, I had a cousin uh, that lived here, too, my mom's sister. Well, anyhow, my cousin, uh, he was really into music, and she's the one that really got me into music. She had, like, stacks of 45s, you know, Eric Burden and... Yeah, rare earth and you name it and she just play them one after another they drop onto the 45 player you yep. know because you could hold like about 15 of those on that record player i remember yeah but uh, look at that, you know and, and it just had a big uh impact on me you know listening to the beatles and michael jack oh, i just loved it all but i never could really afford a drum set and uh when i was 20 i finally i had a mini bike and i traded this guy a mini bike for a drum set mm-hmm and I finally got going. And I'll tell you, I love that drum set, man. I played that thing for like 10 hours a day. 
yeah, I, I, I've heard about this shed that you, that you, that was like your practice pad. Yeah. Yeah. I was lucky enough to have a shed in the back of the house, uh, where we live. So, uh, you know, me and my buddies, we always party there, have keggers and then, you know, finally I got me a drum set and then I started having, you know, people come over and play. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't very long after. I think within two years, I was already on the road and making records and touring. Wow! I mean, it's kind of like I learned. I learned while doing it. You know, sort of. It, it was pretty quick uh, learning curve. You know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's one way of doing it. So, like, you're entirely self-taught. Oh yeah, I'm totally self-taught. Mm-hmm. You're known for having like a jazzy style. Were you Were you into jazz? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I used to collect jazz albums. I used to go to the record stores and find the the best ones, you know. Mm-hmm. I was totally into jazz, yeah, definitely. Like, who were the jazz drummers that you were really into? Billy Cobham. There was numerous records I liked. Like, uh, Phil Collins is one of my favorite drummers, too. Mm-hmm. I, he, he's, I think he's just an amazing drummer. He, he's left-handed, but he can he plays things that just, man, I, I really admire him. But, uh, you know, like Billy Cobham and uh, various other drummers that played with Jeff Beck, like in the Wired album. Uh, and, so you were a fusion head. You know, I, I like that stuff, too. I liked a lot of different stuff. And I li- I couldn't really play jazz, you know, back then. I liked it, but I, I, I really wasn't good enough to play it. I didn't have uh, my, enough skill to do it. Well, and even today, I'm, I'm, I could do it a little bit, but not <laughs> not as much as I'd like to. Yeah. It, it seems like it's you never can learn enough, you know. I don't think I'm ever going to feel like I really know enough on the drums before I die. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever mess around with, like, trying a traditional grip or anything like that? Uh, I knew of it, but no, it didn't work for me. I just matched a grip, and I just sat down in my shed, and I just turned on my stereo or record player, and I just played into the night you know i wouldn't even get up to turn the light on i just keep going <laughs> yeah. what about the neighbors weren't you happy about it? <laughs> yeah. what about seeing jazz like did you ever go up to the, like the lighthouse in hermosa oh, yeah. and, and oh, see absolutely yeah. absolutely yes i did I, I went there a lot of times and i saw a lot of great jazz musicians for really cheap and there was hardly even any people that would even come to some of those shows you know like even max roach you know i, I would sit next to him hand of his drink you know that's how close i was and i was just amazed by those guys because man they, to me then you know just seeing them play they're like magicians yeah like how did they do that? it was pretty it was really uh really uh fascinating to me yeah. But, uh, yeah okay so like yeah when you know you start playing with d boone and mike watt and they're re- really starting to get into punk rock i, I the kind of story that, as it's presented, is like, you know, they were all in, and you're just kind of along for the ride. You're, you know, you're their friend that's just kind of no. doing, doing their thing. But were you in? Did you get bit what? by the punk rock bug too? Uh, oh, I knew of punk rock, and, and the way it really started out was, you know, in the shed. And I've played with some other friends of mine, and and Mike always wanted to come over and play. And I did. I I went to school with Mike and Debo. We graduated the same year. Yeah. But I didn't really know him in, from school. And uh, I met Mike after, you know, after we graduated. I was 20 years old, of course. I ran into Mike and I got to know him. And uh, eventually I ended up 
having them come over and we started playing and then we tried to get a couple other guitarists to play and uh he kept saying d boone he wanted to get d boone to play finally he got d boone over there and, and uh, so yeah so we finally got d over there and then we got a singer martin tamborovich and that's how uh the reactionary started and reactionaries lasted a little while and we were supposed to record something and i don't know it didn't happen like uh for some reason, didn't want to do it, and so that the band set broke up, and then we just, you know, came back together as a three piece, and we just we used to go to punk rock shows together, and uh, we finally got our first gig through Brendan uh, uh, Mullen. He had, uh, ran a, a club called The Mask mm -hmm. up in Hollywood. We used to go there and watch shows there all the time. You could see like you know seven or eight bands in one night. Yeah. And it was it was really amazing. It was it was so new and it, it was so fresh. It, it was really a fun time, and it just changed my whole perspective on music. You know, because you know all the stuff I listened to. You know, those are rock stars with the spandex and all that stuff. Man, I'm glad I didn't end up going that way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you had the hair, but it was a different kind of hair. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was a little bit different. It was really a mess. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that's how Minutemen pretty much started going. We got gigs to and then one after another, and the, the scene was just really going strong, and mm -hmm. we were involved in it. Looking mm -hmm. ahead a little bit, you know, when, when Dee passed away, did you think you would keep playing music, or, like, or did you cons consider finding another band to join, or...? Oh yeah, I, I definitely was going to keep playing music. I love playing the drums, you know, and that, there's no way I was going to stop. And uh, yeah, I did end up getting in another band at one point before the Minutemen, actually, um, a, a band called Hey Taxi. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I made a, a single with them, and I just wanted it. Really, was I? I wanted to record something, so I finally got to get my first record out was with Hey Taxi, yeah. and uh, then uh, uh, Mike and he wanted to, wanted to play with this. Uh, well, uh, actually, Mike and he was playing with a drummer called Frank Tonchi, and they were going to go in and record their first single, you know. And I guess for some reason he he didn't want to do it. I, I don't know what the reason was, but. Uh, Mike called me up that Thursday and he said, Georgie, will you play drums for, for so we can make this thing? I said, yeah, sure. Okay, Mike. So I went the next day on Friday and recorded Paranoid time with them. Mm -hmm. I think it was four songs. Yep. So I learned it right there and, and recorded them. And then uh, we're back together again. Yeah. Doing it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Do you recall like the meeting Ed Crawford and the addition prior to forming Firehose? Yeah, well, Mike just kind of called me out of the blue and said uh, he had this kid over at his house living under his table. <laughs> he was playing guitar and he was teaching him some songs and stuff. And uh, he said, you want to try it, you know, get, get back together and do something? I said, absolutely, you know. Mm -hmm. So we started uh, rehearsing with Ed. And uh, he was picking up on it pretty good. And we were moving right along, started writing songs and started doing gigs yeah do you remember yeah. like that first jam session do you like do you remember what you were thinking like the you know did you know right away that this is something that could go somewhere um 
I don't think I, I was really concerned with that. I, I was happy to, to know that we're trying to start something again, you know. Right. And when you're starting out, it's work, you know. You don't really think about, oh, it's just going to go anywhere. It's hard to judge something like that, you know. Yeah. But as we just started working on songs, you know, right away, just putting them together and, you know, learning them. And, you know, for for Ed, you know, it's a, a learning curve for him, too, you know. Uh, it was just work. We just, hey, we're going back to work, so we're going to work. And yeah. that's what we did. Yeah. Going ahead even further, From Ohio ended up being your last Firehose record on SST before the move to Columbia. Do you know when the talk of moving off of SST began? Well, you know, there, there was always some kind of turmoil or something going on with SST. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had met this, uh, this guy... Uh, I can't re- I can't remember his name. I don't know. He was with Columbia Records, and we became friends with him. And he's the one that kind of got us hooked up with Columbia. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a weird thing, you know. Uh, it was just for that that recording, and we did it. And I don't know. There was never no really no contact or anything. It's really kind of a weird thing. And even to this day, you know, it's there's no no personnel or anybody that I can think of that i could talk to about it or call and say hey oh jim dunbar was his name okay. he's the one that yeah jim dunbar yeah. but uh yeah so it's really kind of a weird thing it really feels strange in a way you know yeah but we still we still suck it out with this team yeah uh the the from ohio record was recorded outside of cleveland Painesville, Ohio. Was this some? Was this a place that Ed knew about, or how did this? Do you know how it came about? I I don't. I'm not sure. I I'm not sure how that came about. I don't remember, but I know it was a, a like a 110 year old barn somewhere that a lot of country musicians recorded in. Mm-hmm. It, so it was it was an already established studio. It was out in the woods. Nice studio, and you know, nice and quiet out there. And somehow we got some, uh, we found a spot to uh, get some time in that studio out there, so we did it out there. Yeah, to, as was often the case back then, it was recorded quickly. 30 hours is what it says in the in the liner notes. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> a lot of the recording sessions were pretty quick. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. We, do th- we did things econo, like we said, you know. Yeah. We didn't have a whole lot of money and... We did what we could with what we had. Yeah. Uh, engineered by Paul Hammond. Do you have any recollections at all about the sessions? I mean, they were pretty pretty quick, so. Uh, yeah, not not a whole lot. I mean, uh, I just remember the place. It was just out in the woods, and it was kind of quiet and mm-hmm. unusual to, like, some of the other places that were recorded at. It was quite different. Right. But uh, it was just an old barn, and it was fixed up like a studio. It, it was nice. I mean... Did you stay with, um, you know, some family members of of Ed's? Did he still have family around the area? Uh, We yeah, we stayed with his folks a couple times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when we were on tour, if we're when we're rolling through uh, Ohio. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Uh, We played gigs every night. We we didn't have nights off. We played every single night. So we're pretty much rolling. (laughs) <laughs> you know, the wheels were rolling all the time. <laughs> yeah. If you're not playing, you're Sometimes. paying, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You got that right. 
Uh, and it's, I'm again, I'm just going off of what, I'm guessing off of what it says in the liner notes, but it sounds like maybe the vo- some of the vocals were done back in Hollywood. Do you remember that at all? Uh, I don't recall that so much because I, I didn't do a whole lot of singing in those days, so I, I probably wasn't at those recording sessions. Okay. Yeah, I'm, it sounds like it was maybe mixed at track recorders in Hollywood and some of the vocals were, were done there. Yeah. Yeah. That was probably... Ed and Mike. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you shot a couple videos for two of, at least two of the songs, Riddle of the 80s and Time With You. Do you remember anything about those who produced, like who shot them? Uh, there's a little kid. I think it's the same kid in both of them. Do you do you remember any of that? Yeah. I, I forget the guy's name. Uh, that was a general, uh, you mean Walking the Cow? Nope. Uh, earlier, uh, Riddle of the 80s oh, and Time yeah, With You. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't remember much about that now. Yeah. But I know what you're talking about. That video. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little kid walking around with like a, a bullet, you know, uh, yeah, bullets yeah. and a machine gun. It's an interesting yeah. video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I just saw that video again, like uh, last month. With the God, I haven't I haven't seen it in ages. I, I totally forgot about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I don't remember much about that. <laughs> Well, it's up on YouTube, so... Um, yeah. Okay, uh, on the previous Firehose albums and, and also the two after, uh, you contribute, and to Minutemen, uh, a lot of Minutemen songs, you contributed lyrics. Tell me about your mm-hmm. process for writing. Like, were you were you just writing in a, you know, in a journal? Like, how, how did you come up with lyrics to all yeah. these songs? Well, you know what? I, I had a, full, a full-time job, too, so it, it was pretty pretty hectic but i do it at work a lot of times you know i I was a machinist so i'd write down you know i'd get i'd be thinking about something while you know running my machine and i just write stuff down Mm -hmm. you know i always had a piece of paper somewhere and i'd just start to get an idea and write something down and this you know pretty much like that Mm -hmm. because most of the time you know we'd play a lot of gigs and i'd get home at like three or four in the morning and i'd have to go to work at like six wow yeah (laughs) <laughs> kind of hectic sometimes, I'll tell you. Yeah. But I guess you can do that stuff when you're young. I <laughs> guess. Never any problem getting time away to, to go on tour? Uh, yeah. Well, that machinist job finally ended, but uh, luckily I got I was in construction work too, so I had, a, I had a pretty good boss. He let me take off. I told him I'm going anyway. You know, if you want me back, if, it, if I'm any good to you, I'll come back and when I get home after tour and I'll work. And he always hired me back, mm-hmm. back on. So I always had a job when I got back. He was pretty good about that. All right. Um, you wrote lyrically, I think, uh, uh, you wrote Toe on the Line off of uh, Flying the Flannel with Sandra Baez, who, who is thanked in the liner notes from, for, from. Yeah, that was a girl. Yeah. Who's, yeah. who's Sandra? She was my girlfriend at the time. Ah, Okay. Bless her heart. Uh, From Ohio has two awesome drum solos on it. Let the drummer have some and Nuff That Shit George. Whose idea was that? Was that something you proposed? Uh, uh, I think all of us proposed it to fill in the space. So I just shot something from the hip, you know. The the one uh, East Wind I did, uh, I made uh, my own drum. I made it out of a steel can. Oh. And I just your drum but uh yeah so are they nice 
Yeah. Were those pieces in, improvised? They were improvised, absolutely. Oh, wow. Yep. Really great live drum sound on on this record. Yeah. 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 It's, you know, the we've heard a lot of this stuff on SST, and, um, you know, all three of the, the Firehose albums sound great, and, and that's not something that can be said for a, a lot of the SST stuff from this era, especially the drums. Yeah. 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 Well, I think uh, probably uh, Spot helped us record some of those. Well, not Firehose, but I think uh, you're talking about Firehose, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely uh, Minutemen he, he helped out with. Yeah, Minutemen, yeah. Yeah. The liner notes thank Steve Call for emphasis, is what it says. Was he booking your tours at this point? Do you know? Yes, he booked, he booked all the tours. Yeah, we, we, we did the tour circuit. We kind of made our own tour circuit, you know. We started out going state to state, and we by the, we did that for 18 years. You know, by the time uh, 18 years goes by, you know a lot of club owners. <laughs> I bet, yeah. And they had us back every year, you know, everywhere from Alabama to New York City to... They couldn't wait to have us back. So it was really it was a good relationship. Yeah, I'm sure they all blur together, but do you recall any standout shows from the from this era from the from Ohio tour? Do you like do you know if you know, for example, yeah. I, I know you went out with Slovenly earlier. Did you go out with a band for this one? Do you know? Um I don't recall. yeah, Slovenly went on a few of our tours. Mm-hmm. But uh uh Jeez, boy, I'd have to dig through the memory banks to remember who else we brought along with us. I can't recall right off the top of my head. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, you know, you guys played almost a thousand shows. So, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. sure they kind of blur together after a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You better believe. Every night. Yeah. Two days off. Any idea where the cover photos from this came from? I, I have a feeling Ed maybe sourced them. Uh, a lot of people take pictures and send us stuff, you know, all the time. So it could have been that and, or maybe Ed. oh, I think Mike came up with that. Might have took that picture of, uh, the graffiti mm-hmm. of the face on the garage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was somewhere in San Pedro. Someone graffitied that on there. And I think he might've took the picture of that. Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite fire hose release? Uh, you know what? I listen, I like all of them, to be honest with you. Time goes by, you know, you record those those songs, and you, you get, at the time, you, you get tired of playing them, of course, but yeah. now, now that time goes by, and I go back and I listen to them, I, I go on the internet, and I listen back to those tunes, and uh, I'm really amazed by them. It really, uh, at the time, I didn't think it was, you know, I, I thought, yeah, it's pretty good, George. You're doing all right, you know. Yeah. But then I listen back to him now. I go like, man, that's pretty good. You did pretty good. I, I, I'm. It's really, uh, really surprises me. I like all the tunes. I really do. Yeah. I like them more now than I did then. I think, or I can appreciate them more now. You know, the Minutemen legend just kind of keeps growing, and which is amazing, and is the way it should be. But do you think the Firehose legacy gets overshadowed by the Minutemen? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. When Firehose dissolved in 94, did you, at that point, did you think you would keep going? Like, you know, did, 
you know, possibly forming another band or, or, or joining a band? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I did play some play for a little while with uh, Mayo Thompson, Red Crayola. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, I always, I always played, I, I'm always playing with somebody. And then I started playing, uh, where I did the Vita yep. re, uh, album and, and I played with some friends in Hermosa. I've been playing with them for the they're called Farmers. I've been yep. we, in fact we put out a, a record that's uh, coming out with probably in the next few weeks. Oh wow! So I've been playing with them for geez, twenty five years. Yeah, wow. we get together on Tuesday and just play because we like to play. We didn't do a whole, a whole lot of gigs, but we we just love to play. Yeah, and you you have yeah. a studio album coming out. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And I'm in another band uh, currently that I do with a bass player. You're talking okay, with I Joe? Okay, I got cut off. Okay, yeah. I, I, oh, the Winkling Brothers. Yeah. How much of that is improvised? Um, a little bit, not much. There, we, we have songs that we do, and what we do is we allow you know, people to come up and play with us if they want. Like, there's a saxophone player that comes up and plays every once in a while if he can make it. Yeah, Vince Sometimes Joe, yeah. Biza, yeah. Joe Biza comes and plays. Vince Maroney is the saxophone player. And someone says, hey, man, I, you know, i like to play with you guys. We'll let them play. The, the, we tell them to learn a few tunes, come on up, and we'll, next gig they'll come and play with us. Yeah. Will there be a studio album of the Wrinkling Brothers? Yeah, we're working, we're working on one right now too. Oh wow! Doing with, yeah, so that I don't know when that's going to be coming out. That's that's probably in a, a few months ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right on. We'll, we'll keep our eye out for that and for the Farmers record as well. All right. Yeah, George, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I appreciate it. Wow. So cool to hear from George. Hey, like what a, what a great guy. Definitely interesting to hear how he went to the lighthouse and was checking. It was totally just like absorbing. That was a, that was a great spiel when you guys were talking about that. I was like, oh yeah, I'm sure he went to Des Kadena's dad's club, right? Oh yeah. To see, to see all these heavies. Oh, I, I Googled mapped it. It's like a 30 minute drive from Pedro. And I'm like, he for sure went there. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome, man. Yeah. And self-taught and yeah. he just was working it. Oh, he was, man. he was working it in the engine room to learn his craft. So good. Considering he's one of the most influential drummer drummers of the punk movement like, right. and that he's self-taught like that. I have to mention, I've been trying to, for over probably two years, well, for sure, because it's been like two years since we've seen Firehose last. Yeah, at uh, least. To have George on the show, uh, and his wrinkling brother, Joe Dean, was incredibly patient with me and also at, totally instrumental in making it happen. At one point, he said something to the effect to me of like, he really just doesn't like talking about himself. He's so humble. That's what he said yeah. about George. And he was, he yeah. was there's there's so much amazingness with this band and my and my memories and what the lore and george was just uh so humble but amazing that he would spend the time with us and give us those spiels and tell us how he he started you know woodshedding it yeah love that yeah it's, it's so cool that he did our show and he's such a nice guy um to this day like you know he's a down to earth working class dude 
and I hope he knows how respected and, and influential he is. Yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing his new records this year, man. Yeah. Oh, that'll yeah. Be, that'll be cool. I, I like how he puts it uh, when they formed Firehose. When I asked him, you know, like, did he know as soon as, you know, they started playing with Ed that, that uh you know Ma- the, the, it was going to be magic right, or something right. yeah 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 and he just a total like uh minutemen firehose ethos he just goes it was just work we were going back to work so that's what we did yeah <laughs> yeah that's so cool uh so we went and saw the band fucked up last night uh and in between sets they were playing you know punk rock songs and they played uh the minutemen's vietnam vietnam you know oh yeah Let's say I've got a number. That number's fifty thousand or whatever. Does Damien like curate the uh, the the tracks? Yeah, or something I wouldn't like be that? surprised. Um, and I was air drumming on the table, like, and just playing every beat, you know. And George is just one of those drummers where you can air drum. Oh, dude, you know <laughs> the 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 fills that Georgie has done on all of these records that are imprinted on my brain. Like, I know it's just crazy. Hey, can I uh, read you some spiels about this record? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let me give you a spiel out of the Trouser Press record guide. This is the fourth edition. Okay. Here's what uh, Ira Robbins said in the fourth edition. And he's quote he's quoting some lyrics here, right? You'll, you'll recognize this. I'm reaching out, hear me spiel and shout, sings Ed Crawford at the start of From Ohio. Firehose's best, most accessible work yet. There's acoustic folk instrumentals, rye watt spiels, jittery rockers, pretty rockers, jolly sing-alongs, even a drum solo. As usual, listening to Firehose is like hanging out with your best friends, shooting the breeze, and feeling good. Yeah. Agree with that. I read a few uh, reviews, and... uh, that's a definitely a common thread is that it's their most accessible record, which I've never really thought of it that way before. But, you know, after reading that a few times and listening to it, it definitely is, I would say. Yeah, yeah, that's fair to say. By this point, anyways. Yeah. Here's Ira in the Trouser Press Guide to 90s Rock. This is the fifth edition. Totally different write-up on From Ohio. For better and worse, From Ohio is a far more mature effort. Crawford has absorbed a bit of his bandmates' eccentricities and his voice has lost some of its shriller edges, both thanks, no doubt, to the trio's constant touring. Watt and Hurley, however, seem to pull their punches a bit. Understanding and Vastapol reek of second-string 70s country rock. Ouch. Hmm. So That's a bit of a, bit of a, bit of a <laughs> negative, negative hit there from Ira in the, uh, the fifth edition. Here's a spiel from Andrew Earls out of Gimme Indie Rock. 500 essential American underground rock albums from 81 to 96. So check this out. And and Andrew has um, Raging Full On, From Ohio, and Flying the Flannel. So he's picked these as like his top three hose records, okay? Surpassing the San Pedro, California band's sophomore full-length, Ifin, from Ohio serves up twice as many indispensable and quintessentially Firehose songs, including the captivating opener, Choose Any Memory, that's actually not on this record, the slow and heavy for Firehose, The Softest Hammer, 
the equally pretty but rocking some things and riddle of the 80s and it mentions how there was a video for that the most noticeable growth heard here compared to rage and full-on is an increase in the acoustic folk informed presence carried over from the band's second album best used on the strikingly pretty ballad understanding and the appropriated john fahey like traditional workout vastapol from ohio would be the final sst album for guitar singer ed crawford bassist singer mike watt and drummer george hurley but the trio did return as an early and unlikely, as in pre-Nevermind, major label signing with the much harder rocking Flying the Flannel in 91. And I was digging th- I was digging through the Mojack stacks and I found this spiel from way, way back. I don't think we've referenced this one for a while, but this is that Dave Lang article from Perfect Sound Forever. Right. He does that uh, two-parter, hey, on uh, the SST record story. Yeah. Here's what he says about From Ohio. Their 1989 LP, From Ohio, is my fave of the lot. Ditching most of their jazz-funk background, here the band takes a more back-to-basics, roots-rock approach, and this time it works. From the cover art, random shots of the Midwest America, to song titles like Riddle of the 80s, Liberty for Our Friend, to the styles featured within acoustic folk, heavy guitar rock, cheesy balladeering, hip-hop-style yapping perfectly bookend this release as a state of the nation address at the time playing this on a rainy day was a treat it's just that kind of music couldn't agree more there again and then i'm gonna spiel you something from this book every now and then i'll whip this one out when we have a mike watt release on the show this is hell on wheels a tour stories compilation this is pulled together by greg jacobs this book and it's got uh tour stories from a ton of like 80s and 90s bands like all babes in toyland bottle surfers cadillac tramps circle jerks coffin break descendants it goes on and on and if you recall uh watt has got a chapter in here oh i recall <laughs> yeah and he's got all these little spiels and they have these great names like gun fun head flame bass snap stooge roust ball swell yeah, I remember ball swell. Yeah, chow heave. <laughs> here's here's one. Uh, I I don't think I've read this one before. It's called Mouth Flame. Okay, <laughs> Mouth Flame, and it mentions George in it, so I had to read. It. And it's from '89, so here we go. And it's the Springboard Tour, so here we here we go. This is out of the Hell on Wheels book. Mouth Flame, the Springboard Tour found Firehose playing Miami, Florida, in the spring of '89. We were doing this gig in the Haitian area where George had found some tiny orange peppers and some brine shrimp. Not thinking much, I chomped too many down and started burning immediately. I tried flushing my mouth with everything, but nothing worked. I burned and burned for minutes, then hours. I played the gig crying from them fucking peppers. (laughs) They, They even burned a hole in the roof of my mouth. To this day, my brain continues to leak from my mouth when I open it. All right. <laughs> That's the springboard tour, man. Yeah. There you go. Right on, man. Let's uh let's talk about this record. Sure. History lesson part two. Hey, let me hit you with a spiel from the spaceman to start us off. All right. Okay, here we go. From the SST catalog, 
back page, back pages, 1989's first harvest. Here we go. Firehose from Ohio. Fire rages on as Spielmasters Watt, Hurley, and bang, Crawford roll over a spare rock in the Midwest. Thunderbrooms become ironing boards. The drummer has some fun, and Ed gets his name back by giving it up. Includes time with you, in my mind, understanding, and 11 more. SST 235, LP cassette, and CD. Yeah. It was the first harvest of 89, February. Mm-hmm. And they were like mixing it in November. They really turned shit around back in those days. Yeah, no kidding, hey? Yep. Track one, side one, Riddle of the 80s, written by Watt. You got that opening funky little lick and then that snare crack, and we're off with an all-time firehose classic. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I wrote uh, a top 10 firehose song for me, and then I crossed it out because... I probably, too ma- I probably too many. can't stand by that, but, um, as mentioned in the interview, there's a video for this. I, I think using some of the same footage from the time with you video, it's close up shots of Ed singing. Um, but I think it's the same footage from time with you and they're just trying to s- make it look like he's singing riddle of the eighties. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they did jam a so, um, yeah. Uh, a close-ups of the the snare, Watts fingers, etc. Looks like the same kid from the Time with You video. It's up on YouTube. Um, I couldn't really find any info on it anywhere though. Yeah, like I said though, the band is just on fire right out of the gate. They're they're playing so well. It's it's kind of a traditional sounding song almost, but just listen to the the drum patterns and Watts bass lines are insane right and uh ed from ohio was just wailing just wailing yeah uh track two in my mind is an ed song always loved this one and kind of the latin vibes with the acoustic guitar and george playing uh those latin sounding rolls on the rack toms uh oh they almost sound like rototoms or something Mm -hmm. you can kind totally picture ed writing this like on an acoustic guitar oh yeah these are just short pop songs. The you know two minutes tops. The first two songs, uh, which I think you know ties in with with what some of those reviews were saying about it being like their most accessible work. Yeah, it's interesting. Like in my mind is an ultra catchy track. It's it's a Crawford track. The first song, Riddle of the Eighties, it's maybe the least Watt sounding yeah. song on the record. It's it's pretty. It's a pretty, I don't want to call it accessible, but I mean, it's more accessible than some of the other Watt tracks on this record. Uh, but they, ble- like, you just listen to those two tracks back to back, and they are just such a solid unit. They are picking up what each other's putting down. Yeah. Track three, Whisperin' While Hollerin', written by Watt, just the Mike Wattiest of song titles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's a real poet, man, in these uh, lyrics, hey? Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. Uh, built around a super cool Watt bass line. Stuff like this is always cool, like in the context of the album. Like, I wouldn't put this song on my Best of Firehose mixtape, but when I'm listening to the album, I totally love it. And just, I'm popping my thumb in the air, like I'm slapping on the parts where <laughs> Watt slaps, you know? Like, air slap bass, I guess I'm playing. Oh God. You know, that's, that probably looks ridiculous. 
I think he's pop. He's doing more popping than slapping, but whatever. Yeah. Track four is how do you say it? Vastapool. Vastapool. Yeah. It's it's traditional slash Crawford because it is a traditional song, and uh, and Ed is uh, really tearing it up on this track. It's uh, it's it kind of serves the purpose as an an interlude. Yeah. But it's it's definitely uh, like a traditional you know, country blues song written by Elizabeth Cotton. And we've uh, seen Elizabeth before. Yeah. I don't think it was written by Elizabeth Cotton. I actually read up on it a little bit. She definitely made it famous. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And it's cool. She plays it in an open tuning that's often now referred to as Vastapool tuning. Uh, there's great footage of her on YouTube playing it. She was left-handed and she played like upside down and yeah. so when she hit the bass notes, it was on what most would consider the high E string, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's totally worth watching and you'll see what I mean when you do watch it. Um, and the title traces back to the Crimean War and a port city on the Black Sea called Sevastopol. Uh, and scholars yeah. say it was originally written by an Ohio music teacher named Henry Worrell in 1884. Ah, so, that's an interesting Ohio connection yeah, there, hey? Yeah. yeah. And I doubt Ed plays it the same way that Elizabeth Cotton does, but I'm, no. I'm sure he that's what, who he learned it from. And I like how it sounds on here, like they maybe mic'd, mic'd it from across the room in the studio, like it's not close mic'd. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it makes it sound like someone's sitting on a porch or something like that. And it, it's not a perfect take. There's some flubs in it, and it's better for it. Yeah, I like well, that about it. if you watch that youtube video elizabeth you know doesn't play in perfecto either her guitar's a little out of tune and it's like it's perfect too and don't forget on the ifin album there is the song in memory of elizabeth cotton yeah that one i can enshrine in one of in my top 10 firehose songs for is sure. that right hey oh yeah 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 i've uh i actually just pulled a quick spiel on elizabeth too you want me to hit it hell yeah yeah, so uh, this is this is kind of like a summary of, you know, all those various sources, the, the Wikipedias, the Discogs. Elizabeth Cotton was a self-taught blues and folk musician, singer and songwriter, born in 1893, Carborough, North Carolina. Uh, she passed away in 87 in New York, age 94. Uh, she developed her own style of playing left-handed by holding a normally tuned guitar upside down so she played the melodies with her thumb and bass lines with her fingers. Cotton wrote most of her music in her early teens and earlier. It wasn't until she was working as a maid for Charles Seeger, an avid music lover, that she taught how to play guitar. In the 50s, Mike Seeger began to record Cotton on a reel-to-reel -reel tape in 1960. So just think about that. She's like in her 60s, yeah. and, and she began to play live for the first time. Her first show was with Mike Seeger, and she went on to perform with musicians such as Mississippi John Hurt, John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, and many others. She began to write again in the 60s, and with her new material and her standards, she continued to tour and record into the 80s. In 1984, she won the Grammy for Best Ethnic or Traditional Recording for the album Elizabeth Cotton Live. Yeah, super impressive. Yeah. Okay, the next track is Ma Cajones. Ma Cajones, yeah. Written by Watt, I, which I think 
probably translate to my balls or more balls or something like that. Yeah. Uh, Watt is credited with minor spiel. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, it's important that I say this. Winking at my peers, quoting Thurston. Yo, you could have been our sound, man. Man. (laughs) Again, it's cool in the context of the album for me, this song. Like, uh, you know how... Ed sings the first words uh, of each of the 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 spiels, mm-hmm. and then the middle section with the distorted guitar comes in, and and it's always cool. That part. Yeah, I'd agree. Track six, "What Gets Heard," written by Watt. Watt credited with major spe- spiel, uh, and here you know we're talking about a total Watt classic, um, one of his best bass lines for sure. I would say. Mm-hmm. And Ed's lead over top of it is just perfect. And also he bu- busts out a total D Boone guitar solo. Yeah, that's killer. I, I've always loved that last line. I choke and fuck the layup. Yeah. Definitely some basketball references on this record. Yep. Uh, track seven, let the drummer have some written by George. Uh, just a bitch in one minute drum solo from George like Vestapool a cool interlude. And when you've, you know, heard this album a thousand times, um, you just have to have these in here. Like I have a, a best of Firehose CD that lives forever in my 100 disc changer. Like oh, I, like, like, like I made, made it. A, yeah, like I made a CDR. It. Okay. Yeah. And I play it every once in a while. Uh, but it's kind of not the same as listening to the albums. Yeah. And I, I can't help but think that that, that the name for this track, Let the Drummer Have Some, is a take from that uh, James Brown song, Cold Sweat, where he says, you know, give the drummer some. And they're like, should, uh, we, give the, gi- should we give the drummer some? Yeah. Should we give the drummer some? Yeah. And then there's that breakdown where uh, Clyde Stubblefield, he does that huge drum break that's been sampled a bazillion times, you know. That's from that uh, classic 1967 JB song, Cold Sweat. That's for sure where they got that from. Right? Yeah. I think I think so. Uh, track eight, Liberty for Our Friend, written by Watt, Kira, and Miss Kelly Thornton. Mm-hmm. I've always really liked this song. You know, a nice shuffle from George, the gang vocal, Watt kind of in the lower octave, and Ed, uh, you know, up an octave. It's cool. Uh, Kira told us that Kelly Thornton was a lady friend of Watt's, if you mm-hmm. remember. Oh, I remember. And that's the end of side one. Actually, side one is called this side. Side two is called the other side. Okay, so while, while we're on to the other side, and that starts off with Time With You, written with by Ed. Ooh. Definitely the single, literally. Uh, they pressed it as a 12-inch promo single with the track on both sides, which is odd. I'm not sure we've seen that before. Again, there's a video uh, with the band playing lots of, you know, lots of close-up shots, this kid walking around with a machine gun. Uh, seems like it's supposed to possibly be a commentary on something, but I'm not sure what. Doesn't really fit with the lyrical theme, but whatever. Uh, I just totally love this song. Oh, yeah. The B-side is the best side on this record for me. Yeah. But I love I, I love it all. Just hang on one second here, man. Yeah, no. Ryan just pulled the 12-inch... Uh, time with you ep off his shelf to check for dead wax there's no dead wax no on dead this wax. dang it dang it i sh- i didn't really look it's a radio copy and i 
it kind of got hidden in the uh, in the stacks there. But uh, we'll have to post a pic of this one for sure. Yeah, that's weird, hey? Like that they, I mean, it's not weird that they chose this song or anything, but we haven't, I don't know if we've seen a 12-inch uh, promo single. Uh, this might be one of the first ones. I know there's a, there's a Me Puppets one, I think, coming up, but this might be the first. Okay, so we're off to track two on the other side. Ifin, written by Watt. Another Watt pen classic. Oh, yeah. Uh, burn matches, grow in patches, need in trances. Shit. <laughs> and then they shift gears and just totally rock out. This song kind of has it all. A watch spiel, you know, the fetching beats retching, <laughs> like scratching cures itching. A wicked ass bass line, a rock section with a gnarly solo. It kind of has all the fire hose stuff in it. Oh yeah. So I wrote down a gnarly midsection. Yeah. So there's a gnarly solo in the gnarly midsection. I would agree. Just a killer guitar breakdown by Ed. That, and then they just rage, man. They rage full on. Yeah. They sure do. Um, and then we're into Some Things, written by Watt. I think this one could have been a single too. Yep. It, it has a real epic quality to it. Yep. That driving kind of bass line, the 50 dudes, 50 tools part, followed by a killer sol solo always gets me. I love this song. Yeah, I would agree. Yep. Well, the second side two is so good on this record. Yeah, it, it I'm really gonna is. I'm going to say it again. Yeah. I, I have the same thing written here too for this one. A great driving tune. Yeah. Uh, the next one is Understanding. Ed wrote it with lyrics from Kira. First off, the lyrics are great. Perfect for the music. Total poetry. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. This is a very well-sequenced album. I feel like every Firehose album saves these total deep cuts for the end of the album. Um, considering this whole album was done in like three days, it's very well-produced, I would say. Like the band always made tasty production choices. This song, this song when um there are those really quiet moments and ed's vocals there's that delay on it yeah it sounds like he's singing like outdoors almost um in a place that would like echo a bit i don't know it's it's just oh it gives you the feels for sure and this track has got the triple s in it the triple s yeah the great string slide sound where, <laughs> where it goes where it goes in the middle of the song goes like that okay love that sound man yeah i have a thing for songs sometimes that don't really have a chorus but like end with this big epic type of coda mm -hmm. and, and this song has that um like the you know when he's just belting out the song title at the end Ed, yeah love it and then we've got uh another 38 second solo piece from george um nuff that shit george <laughs> Again, I can't help but think it's a it's a James Brown throwback when he would be like, "All right, that's enough," <laughs> and they go right back in. Yeah, um, and then it just kind of ends abruptly, and we're into the softest hammer written by Watt. Oof, what an epic! Yeah, yeah. Um, he, this one was the one for me that was weird. That it was Watt, you know, because it, it doesn't sound like a Watt song in the sense that it's built around a guitar riff and not a bass baseline mm. for me mm. yeah maybe yeah uh love the like the flanger or whatever it is on the vocal it definitely feels like a firehose album closer similar to thunder child on ifin or losers boozers and heroes on fly in the flannel yeah 
Uh, they like to end their albums with these kinds of songs, I feel like. Uh, as it says in the liners, the front cover photos, it says by Cathal Parts, designed by Ed Crawford. So I don't know what, do you know what that is in, in the left? On the- I, I can't figure out what the top left is. The best I can think is like in, it almost seems like you are looking through a windshield or something and maybe it's on a boat yeah. and maybe that's water out in the distance, but I could be totally, totally wrong. I can't tell what it is. I've always thought it was a windshield of some type. Yeah. It yeah. looks windshieldy, but almost like a, an airplane windshield. Yeah. And, and it doesn't seem right. Maybe it's a plane on a boat. I don't know. You've got kind of the, what, you know, always brings to mind like windswept, snowy train, wintry type weather. Yeah. Going across a bridge with yeah. another bridge in the background there. Yeah. And then, you know, this graffiti that George thinks maybe was from, from Pedro. Well, it kind of looked, when I saw this, um, I think it would be after the filmage documentary mm-hmm. and how they were like practicing it. This seems like that back alley that Bill Stevenson is describing where he found this bass in a garbage can to me. <laughs> I don't know. It's a great album cover that just su- suits the music for me. Like, oh, uh, it just oozes fire hose. Yeah. And like who was, who was saying it, um, you know, rainy day music or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like, like that. Dave, Dave Lang. Lang. Dave, Dave Lang. Lang. Yeah. Yeah. He hit it totally. Yeah. And then, uh, for the back photos, left rear photo by Robin Colleen Moore. I'm, I'm assuming that means the photo of Watt. Looks like he's wearing a, maybe the fly in the flannel shirt. Well, it depends. Like, so which liners are you reading, man? Because on the CD, Watt is on the left on the LP. Ed's on the left. Ah, I'm looking at the CD. Okay. So then, yeah, that would be Watt on the left. He's on, he's on the right on the, uh, on the LP. Hmm. Georgie's in the middle on both. Okay. Um, center and right rear photos by Dirk Vandenberg. Um, Dirk, of course, from Tragic Comedy, big time Minutemen collaborator, most famously shot the photos for Double Nickels. Hmm. Um, you can see Ed's, uh, you know, pretty famous guitar that he always plays. I think it's a sh- called a Schrechter. Um, he used that for a lot of Firehose albums and tours. Did you call it a Schrechter or a Schechter? Is it called a Schechter? It's called a Schechter. I think yeah. a Schrechter <laughs> is an animated uh, green <laughs> ogre. <laughs> All right. Uh, what's Ed? What's George pushing? Is that like a big bass drum or something? I can't tell what it is. It all... I don't think he's pushing it, is he? I think he's kind of laying on it. Oh, I thought he was maybe pushing a kegger into the shed or something. No. Getting ready for a late night jam session. Again, I always think of, I always think of the water when I think of these guys from Pedro, right? And so it almost looks like, like a, like a buoy or a big pontoon on a pontoon boat or something. It just, I, I don't know. It seems nautical to me. But it doesn't look like George has got the unit. Yeah. Well, he might have it tucked up under that hat. Oh, okay. That's like a total telly pickup on on that guitar though, hey? Like I thought these things had humbuckers on them. Schecters? Yeah. I don't know. Is that a Schecter? I thought it was a telly. I don't know. 
Jeez, man. I do know that that's the Thunder Broom, and Watt is flying the flannel. Yeah, it's and the it's the it's the flannel from the cover of uh, flying the flannel. Flying the flannel. Do you want some dead wax? Sure. All right. So, and I just love the dead wax on this one too because I, I don't know the way it was carved out. Um, you can really see some other inscriptions pop like K Disc and JG, and you know John Golden spent some serious care and attention when he was mastering this one. Yeah. Um, on the A side, the dead wax says bum rush. Okay. <laughs> of course it does. And then on the B side, it says the side mouse. Hmm. Yeah. And on the LP, on the B side label, there is the great seal of the state of Ohio, which, which, uh, we'll see that when we post the record. All right. Well, you know what time it is. Oh boy. Ballot result. Okay, man. Uh, this is one of those ones where almost almost all of them are contenders for ballot result. But for me, my top six are these ones. Okay. Uh, in my mind, what gets heard, time with you, if in, some things, and then understanding. And for me, understanding is hands down my ballot result. Yeah, I could tell you were going to say that when you when you when we got to that one. For me, it's uh, riddle, what gets heard, time with you, some things, and understanding. I I would, for me, I'd give it to some things, but we can do understanding, man. Let's do it. They're all so great. Oh, amazing, amazing record. Yeah. Hey Ryan, thanks to Joe Dean again for for helping me with George big time, and thanks to George for being on our show. Yeah, thanks for being so cool, George. Appreciate it. All right, we're back in the saddle, Ryan. What's next week? Ooh, let's do it. 2023, we got some SST to do. Yeah. Next week, Brant, it's SST 236, the Tar Babies Honey Bubble LP. All right, and we've got a special guest. Steve Lewis is going to be on the show. Nice. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.